Some of you may recognize the name of Eugene Peterson. If you've ever read that wonderful paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, um, Eugene Peterson is the one who wrote that, who prepared that paraphrase of Scripture. He's a Hebrew scholar, a wonderful teacher for over 30 years. He was pastor of a church and uh, has written a lot of fabulous books that I consider some of the most helpful books for pastors ever written. Uh, Eugene Peterson writes this about an early experience he had as a child. I'd been taught in Sunday school never to fight, but I'd never been prepared for the wider world of the neighborhood, except to have been told that I should always bless those who persecute you, and when someone encountered me to turn the other cheek. I'd never tested that until I met a boy in my school named Garrison Johns, who every day wanted to pick on me and wanted to start a fight. At the end of school, I would try to find alternate ways home by finding detours through the alleys. But Garrison Johns always stalked me, and he always found me. And when I arrived at home, I would be filled with bruises on my face and humiliated. My mother had told me this was always the way of Christians in the world, and I'd better get used to it. I loved going to school. I'd learned a lot, finding new friends, adoring my teacher. But at the end of every day, I had to face Garrison Johns. March came that year, and there were still patches of snow here and there. The days were getting longer, and I I was no longer walking home in the dark. And then something unexpected happened. I was with my neighborhood friends one day, seven or eight of them, when Garrison Johns caught up with us and started on me, jabbing and taunting, working himself up to the main event. And that's when it happened. Something totally uncalculated, totally out of character. Something snapped in me. The Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness. And I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized instantly that I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground. I sat on his chest. I pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me. I hit him in the face. It felt good, so I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the children were cheering me on. Bust his eyes, break his teeth. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it, so I hit him again. More blood, more cheering. Now the audience was bringing out the best in me. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first convert. Now, every true follower of Jesus Christ has a challenge. God has given us these incredible directives. The central one is that we're to go into all the world and make disciples. At our church here, Grace Fellowship, we kind of sum that up in a pithy phrase. Our purpose is to make more and better disciples. 
We want to introduce people to Jesus Christ and then help them get better acquainted, help them grow in Christ. We, we even talk about what that movement looks like. You go from exploring Christ to uh, being a brand new beginner in Christ, then getting close to Christ, and then finally moving on in your growth until hopefully, finally, we become really Christ-centered people. That's the challenge for every one of us to to share Christ with an unbelieving world and then help people grow. There's an amazing statement that Jesus made in John 3, which is kind of the backdrop for all of this. Let me read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We often stop there. That's the best known verse in the Bible and it's a wonderful one. But we seldom read on the next two verses. They're very helpful. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then this verse is incredible. We so desperately need it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And here's the unsavory part for so many modern people. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So in other words, for a genuine Christian, one of our main desires, since these words are true, they're from Jesus himself, one of our main desires is to introduce our family, our friends, our co-workers, our our acquaintances to Jesus Christ. If you're window-shopping Christianity today, I I first of all applaud you, but I, I would want you to know that's one of the major things we're about because we believe God loves everyone, doesn't want anyone to perish, as this said, and he wants us all to come into a vital relationship with him. But how? How do we share that good news? Jesus also made this statement in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He didn't say, let your light shine in such a way that people will be disgusted and turned off by your super righteous piety or your obnoxious demeanor or your insensitivity to where they really are in life. Now, here's the deal. A maturing Christian should be able to share his or her faith in a very natural and unself-righteous way that God just uses to attract people to Jesus Christ. That's the point of this message. And now I want to spend the balance of our time talking to you about how. So we're going to look at a great example. There was a person in the Bible. His name was Philip. He was one of the early church leaders, a deacon. He was an evangelist. And I want to highlight five things about Philip's life that really enabled God to use him to share his faith without being obnoxious. I hope you'll listen, because as a follower of Jesus, I want to say it again, there's probably nothing more central to what God has called us to than what we're talking about this very day. And by the way, you know, as we talk about growing in Christ, 
all of the research shows and all the anecdotal evidence that I've observed with my own eyes just through life experience indicates that one of the most catalytic things we can do to help us grow into being Christ-centered people is to do what we're talking about today. To actually allow God to use you as a, as a conduit, as a vessel, as, as his instrument to help people find his love his forgiveness in a relationship with him. So, so with that said, let's just jump in and get started. The first thing I would highlight about Philip is that his faith was a genuine faith. To put it bluntly, he was just the real deal. A sincere Christian, an authentic follower. Let, let me explain quickly why I say that. In Acts chapter 6, uh, when the first servants or deacons of the church were chosen, Philip was one of those chosen. Acts 6 reads, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained uh, against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In other words, they're feeding poor widows here who, who are not able to care for themselves, and a dispute was arising. So the twelve, that is the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. It's an important job. It's probably not the main calling we should give ourselves to. So what should we do? Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the very next verse tells us that Philip was one of the seven chosen. Here's my point. Philip was known by his peers to be a wise person guided by the Holy Spirit. But then a dramatic thing happened. Sometime later, persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and the broader area of Judea. And so the Christians were scattered all over the known world. Acts 8 reads, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in that city. Now, please get the main point. When life was stable and going well, Philip had a great testimony and witness. When life, it seemed, was falling apart and persecution arose, guess what? Philip had a great witness and testimony. When life was up, when life was down, here's a guy who was solid. His character was godly. Later in Acts 8, we read, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Philip had such a healthy relationship with the Lord that he was able to sense God's guidance. In fact, when you read this story, it's kind of interesting. God led Philip through circumstances. He led him by an angel. There's an unusual one. And then finally, he led him through the inner prompting of the Holy 
spirit. So the first thing I would say to you is if we really want to be able to pass our faith on, to see our children come into a vital relationship, our moms, our dads, our siblings, our coworkers, people we love, one of the keys to that is that we would be authentic. William Barclay said, a man's message will always be heard in context with his character. And I say to every woman and man listening today that people will be watching you like a hawk when you declare that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And our goal is for people just by our very life and character to think more of Jesus because of their acquaintance with us. Christians have to be good news before they can share the good news effectively. The second thing I would point out about Philip, and that, and that really applies to us too, is if we really want to share our faith without being obnoxious, here's something about Philip. Philip associated with non-Christian people. Now again, at times in these sermons, I make statements that seem so obvious, I, I honestly think there's kind of a collective, duh, But we need to park here for just a moment. Think about this. God took Philip from an effective campaign in Samaria, and he led him to one lone individual. And my, how different they were. The Ethiopian was a eunuch. Philip was a family man. Philip had brown skin. He was a Middle Easterner. The Ethiopian man had black skin. He was African. The Ethiopian was wealthy in this case. And Philip was probably poor or maybe middle class. And yet Philip knew his primary mission was to share Christ with this man who didn't know Christ yet. If we're going to do that effectively, it's obvious, I know, but we've got to get the salt out of the salt shaker into the world, friends. That's very challenging for those of us who are super involved in Christian activities. Maybe you're a leader in the church. Maybe you lead your small group. You associate regularly with Christians. That's all good. That's good. You're helping them grow. You're encouraging one another. You need that boosting that comes through that. But here's the thing that we need to be careful of. If we're not careful over time, we can so insulate and isolate ourselves from unbelieving people that we become practically no good when it comes to the passing of the faith to others. It's just true. It happens. It especially happens with preachers. Because our lives are so wrapped around the life of the church. We, we can go for days without really encountering someone who doesn't really share the faith. So that's a problem. And yet some of you may hear what I've said and go, but wait a minute, Pastor, isn't that kind of dangerous? I mean, aren't we supposed to be careful about those with whom we associate? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. What a great principle. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Better be careful who you hang with. Can't soar like an eagle if you're hanging with turkeys. Right? We all know that principle. 
And yet if our lives are going to be effective for God in sharing the faith, we've got to get out of the salt shaker and in the world. One dear woman was complaining that she was going to leave this apartment complex where she'd been living for a while because she was frustrated. She said, there are no Christians here. I'm going to leave. I'm going to, I want to live around Christians. And a dear friend suggested that perhaps, perhaps, that was the very reason God needed her there. Maybe God had a divine assignment for her to be kind of a a spiritual light in the spiritual darkness of that place. What about you? Are you surrounded by people who really honestly need a relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? How do you view that? What are you thinking about that? Do you see yourself as a Christian missionary cleverly disguised as whatever you do every single day? Let me say it again. There may be nothing more core, more central to what God has called us to and what he's left us here for. Do you ever wonder why God didn't just kind of beam you up to heaven after you were saved? This is it. Beam me up, Scotty. Get me out of here. Why am I down here? He's got a job for you to do. This is one of the major parts of that job. And Jesus modeled this so well as he spent so much time with unbelievers, ungodly people, people whose lives were kind of out of sorts and sideways that he was actually accused of, what a wonderful thing this was. He was accused of being a friend of sinners. Wow. If we're ever accused of that, we ought to wear that badge with honor. We ought to wear that with honor. But if we're going to do that, I just want to quickly give you three principles for impacting people if we are going to have contact with those who don't share the faith yet. Uh, One, I would say, is we need to maintain a consistent Christian life. Uh, Again, we've already touched this, but I just want to touch it once more. If people don't sense in us an authentic belief, a genuine passion, such a profound trust in God where, where they go, look, th- this is just a hobby for you, isn't it really? I mean, it's just something you do on Sunday. It doesn't really affect the rest of your week, right? If that's the case, uh, we might as well say goodbye to having a positive impact. It, it needs to be a consistent life, one where it's not filled with hypocrisy and, and inconsistencies. Second, we need to demonstrate a spirit of joy. Jesus made the incredible statement, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Hear me. People are not influenced by insecure, gloomy, negative believers. Why would they want that? I love that little button that says, if you have the joy of Jesus in your heart, notify your face, right? I mean, honestly, we're the advertisement. And we're not asking people to accept Christians. We're asking them to accept Christ. But make no mistake, if they don't see in us something that looks fairly winsome, 
Forget it. Again, it's just a no-brainer. Why would they want what we're selling? Why would they want what we're sharing and telling them about and telling them is so great? We need to demonstrate a spirit of authentic joy. And again, the challenge is very personal, isn't it? Because if that joy isn't there, we need to ask, why? Wow. I may be actually turning people off from Christ. That would be one of my greatest horrors, by the way. One of my consistent prayers is that people would think more of Jesus because of their acquaintance with me. And I can't ensure that that's going to be the case, and we'll touch on that later. But that is my fervent prayer. And third, we must communicate compassion to people. Over and over again, one of the reasons Jesus was so effective is that he went out of his way, it seems many times, to just be compassionate and caring. I like what Dale Carnegie said, you will make more sales by being interested in people than you will ever by trying to make people interested in your product. If we come across like we're just trying to sell something to people, foist it on them, I think people are going to sniff that out. People need to know, do you care about me as a person? The third thing I want to touch on briefly is that Philip was tactful in his approach to the Ethiopian. He was tactful. I think he was fairly aggressive appropriately, but he was very tactful. He wasn't obnoxious about it or overbearing. He didn't use gimmicks, for instance. He didn't just... uh, try to pretend to be hitchhiking so he could get up uh, in the chariot and then pass out tracks. He wasn't abrasive. He didn't stop the chariot and go, whoa there, whoa, I'm doing a survey on why people are going to hell. I just wondered why you're going. He didn't have a condescending spirit. Ooh, got a Bible out. Ooh, I'm sure you don't understand it very well. So in your ignorance, would you like for me to get up there and explain that to you? Condescending. Uh, Nor did he get into a theological argument. Oh, Isaiah. Hey, have you heard about the Deuteros Isaiah theory? You know, some scholars believe that two authors wrote that book. Let's talk about that. No, he he just, in a very tactful, yet assertive way, approaches the chariot. Do you understand what you're reading there? What What a great question. He was alert to the man's interest. I think he could sense God was already working in this individual's heart, and he wanted to join in with what God was already doing. Can I can I give you a principle that is just fantastic? Many of you who went through the Experiencing God studies years ago, uh, Henry Blackaby, Experiencing God, a great study, uh, you, you probably were introduced to this principle there, but it didn't start there. Here's a prayer that would be great for us to pray every day. God, help me to see what you're doing and get in on it. God, who are the people that you're already working in their lives in a special personal way. Help me to be an agent in your hands. So he was tactful. And one of the things I'm impressed by, again, is the question uh, 
he asked. I would urge you as a follower of Jesus to ask great questions. Learn to ask great questions. Jesus did. Who do people say I am? Hey, what do you think about John the Baptist? Was he a prophet of God? Was he a sinner? Who was he? Do you want to get well? Read the gospel sometime and just look at the fabulous questions Jesus asked. And we can learn to ask great questions like, why do you think there are so many social problems in our culture? It's just one of those big, wide open questions, but it invites discussion and often you can have a meaningful spiritual conversation. What do you think the heart of the human problem really is? Why do you feel so many families and marriages are falling apart these days? What what do you think it is that's at the heart of that? How do you feel about the heavy focus we put on possessions and, and material things? How do you feel about that? Hey, what kind of spiritual thoughts are going through your mind these days? Just great questions that can often lead to wonderful conversations about the Lord and what he's done for us. I was struck by the result of a Gallup poll done some time ago. Catch this, 58% of unchurched people, that is people who do not attend church of any kind, 58% say they're open to either returning or going to church someday. 58 Incredible. We just need to have some meaningful conversations. Fourth, Philip turned the conversation to Christ. Now, now let's be honest. It was kind of easy for him. I mean, don't you wish that some of your encounters were this set up? The guy's already reading from Scripture. And so he just begins at that very passage and begins to talk to him about how Isaiah had prophesied Jesus would come hundreds of years before it happened. That was kind of easy. Philip had it easy. But I'll bet some of your situations aren't quite this easy, huh? It's not always that easy to turn the conversation to Christ. But God can often show us, will often show us how. I think there are two things that we can talk about. I just want to mention these quickly. Two things we can talk about as we kind of turn this conversation toward more spiritual things. One is we can talk to them about the church. So much of what God uses in people's lives, in our experience here at Grace, is that someone just invited someone to go to church. And then that started this journey going, this searching thing, and, and, and then sometime later, six months, a year, two years, five years later, they came into a relationship with Christ. Recently, we sat down with Dave Mann. Dave is a gentleman in our church I greatly respect. He and his wife, Hope, are fantastic Christians. He's a leader, a small group leader, just a great, great man. And we asked Dave Mann to share his testimony. Let's listen to his story together. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, Mom and Dad took us to church uh, every Sunday. Uh, Christian values were were taught in our home, and uh, I could, from as early as I can remember, I can remember going to Sunday school. Uh, I knew all the Bible stories, but I never really got the the point that Christianity was about a relationship with God. To me, it just seemed like 
It was about rules. It was about trying to live a, a good life so that you can go to heaven when you die. The faith that my parents had that I grew up with never really became my own. You know, and as I got older, I started to really dislike going to church. And when I got to be 16, I started working. Uh, I had a job in a restaurant and I would take uh, shifts on Sundays uh, just so I could get out of having to go to church. And that began sort of a rebellious phase of uh, my life. But in the midst of all this, I was tremendously lucky to have been able to meet my wife, Hope. Uh, we went together for three years. Uh, we had a lot of fun together. We fell in love and uh, eventually got married. We uh, started a family together. Um, I started a business. Uh, we bought a home. And it seemed to me like I was actually starting to become a responsible adult. So after, after having children, um, Hope decided that she wanted to get the kids involved in Sunday school and uh, get them going to church to learn about God. And uh, it's something that she didn't really have much of growing up as a kid, and it seemed like it was really important for her to be able to do that. So a friend uh, that she worked with invited her to come to Grace. And she started coming every week, bringing uh, my two boys, Dave and Dylan. They were enrolled in Sunday school, and they, they seemed to really like coming too. But I wouldn't go. Um, you know, getting involved in church isn't something that I wanted to do at the time. I was really resistant towards that. And my daughter, Nicole, was just a baby, so I would stay home and uh, watch her while they went. And this continued for about six months. And uh, somewhere in that period, Hope put her faith in Christ. And she would come home and uh, tell me about the sermon and tell me how good the music was. And, and I kind of felt like she was trying to entice me to come along with her next week, you know. But, uh, but I still wouldn't go. I was very resistant, uh, very, uh, still very cynical and uh, definitely not wanting to get involved in a church. So then, lo and behold, the uh, Christmas season was approaching. And Dave and Dylan were signed up to be in the Christmas presentation. So as you might expect, Daddy got invited to go. And I couldn't say no, so I, I went. And uh, they were amazingly cute. They did a great job. And I got to experience my first service here at, at Grace. And surprisingly enough, I actually found the sermon to be interesting. And the worship, I was really struck by the worship. I, was, I can remember looking around and seeing the people uh, with their hands up and their eyes closed. And uh, I remember looking at the expressions on some of the people's faces. And it, it just seemed like they were really expressing genuine love towards God. And it seemed to be very authentic to me. I seen an invitation in the church bulletin for the Alpha Course. And I remember the flyers saying that it was a 10-week course, basic introduction to the Christian faith, um, you know, the various topics that would be covered. And that's the, I think that's the thing that really attracted me to want to go to the Alpha course, the ability to be able to sit with somebody who knew a few things and be able to ask those questions. So I signed up. I thought that could be a, a great thing to help me uh, to work through this. I, I, I knew that if I was to put my... Uh, to put my life behind this, that I'd have to probably make some sacrifices, I have to make some changes in my life. And I wasn't willing to do that unless I knew with 100% certainty
certainty that, that it was true. So in the small group breakout after, after that week, I, I sort of vented my frustration to the group. And the, the leader of the group had a word for me. And he said, if you take a step towards God, then God will take a step towards you. And it was exactly what I needed to hear at that time. Because um, I went home that night and I couldn't sleep. That's all I could think about was, was what he said, the things I had been learning, you know, uh, about the Bible, thinking about God and where I stand in all this. And I was just sort of wrestling with my thoughts and pondering that stuff all night long. So I felt compelled to do something that I'd never done before, which was I was going to take that step towards God and I was going to pray. I felt like I needed to bring it to Him, you know? And I felt like if I didn't do this, that I would never have any peace. So right there in my office, I got down on my knees and uh, I began to pray and I said, Lord, you know me and you know my heart. I said, Lord, I, I, if you're there, I want to I know you. And, uh, but I'm struggling with all this doubt and unbelief. And, uh, and I've sinned. Lord, uh, please forgive me for that. And it really broke my heart. And uh, when I got up, this amazing feeling came over me. And uh, I can't explain it, but, but I knew, I knew that I'd been in the presence of God at that moment. And I knew that Jesus was his son and that he was the Savior. And I knew that I was forgiven. So that was the beginning of my new life with Christ. And from that day on, he's been changing me. I went from being cynical and full of doubt and unbelief to having faith and a continual awareness of his presence. Um, he changed many lifestyle issues that I have. He changed the way I speak. He changed the way I think. He, uh, he made my marriage better. Looking back, I can see how the Lord was at work with me through that whole progression of events. His, his compelling spirit was drawing me to himself. You know, he was pursuing me. And I can't help but wonder how many people here today, you know, he might be reaching out to. There's a, a verse in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 13, that's really special to me because it kind of sums up my story. And uh, God speaking through Jeremiah, he says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So if you're here today and you're, and you're seeking God, I have a word for you. Take a step towards God. Seek him with all your heart and you'll find him. Man, good story. Good job, Dave. Now, let me just ask you a question. I'd like to see a show of hands. I'd like for you at all of our locations, Saratoga, Greenbush, at Half Moon, and Latham. Let, let me just see a show of hands. If you first came to Grace Fellowship, your, your first time here, if you came because someone simply 
told you about it, said, hey, you ought to check it out, gave you some kind of invitation like that. Can I see your hand, please, if, if that happened to you? It's exactly 3,742 people. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's one thing we can do. We can just, and there's so many awesome things that we can tell them about. But a second thing we can do to turn the conversation toward Christ is to simply share our testimony. If you've come into that walk with Christ, wherever you are on the journey, you've got a story. You don't have to have all the answers, but your story is something that people can't refute. They may say, oh, that's not for me, or they may say, well, I, I need to understand it better. Fine. But it's your story. Tell them your story. In John 9, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And the religious leaders got on the man's case and said, who do you think this Jesus is? He said, I don't really know who he is, but I know one thing. Once I was blind, and now I see he had a story. And if Christ has come into your life, you've got a story too. Don't be afraid to share that story. But as we close, I want to touch on this one last point. Philip trusted God for the results. You know, Philip wasn't pushing the agenda here. In fact, it was the Ethiopian who said, hey, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip just shared the word, and he waited for the man to respond, and he left the results in God's hands. If I said to you today, I've got a Mercedes Benz for you for $1,000. You just got to give me the check within the next five minutes. I doubt if I'd get many checks. You know why? Because you'd go, does it run? Does it have an engine in it? Is it a piece of junk? Is it stolen? What's the deal with this car? You'd be skeptical of that because it just seems too good to be true. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't pressure you into making a decision in the next five minutes. And we say to people, God will forgive all your sins. He will adopt you into his family and he will begin to change you from the inside out. The old will be gone. The new will come. Your eternity with God can be secure. It just seems too good to be true. Hear me, friends. We're foolish if we try to press for immediate responses to that. God has to have a person prepared. In the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul wrote, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And the psalmist gives us this kind of incredible promise in Psalm 126. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying his sheaves with him. You know, I believe heaven is going to be a real kick one day. And I believe the greatest joy of heaven will be seeing our Savior, the one who gave his very life for us so that we could be forgiven and spend eternity in heaven. But you know what I think the second greatest joy in heaven will be? I really believe this. The second greatest kick of heaven will be to walk, be walking down the street of heaven one day and have someone maybe you don't even know walk up to you, grab your arm and go, hey, just got to tell you, I want to thank you. It's because of the way God used you 
and your witness, your authentic life, your sensitivity, your compassion to me, the fact that you cared enough to share with me the truth and just ask me good questions and get involved. It's because of how God used you that I'm here today. That'll be the second greatest joy of heaven. Father, help us to learn to share your love in such a winsome way that people would honestly think more of Jesus because of their acquaintance with us. I pray, oh God, that you would help us to continue in this quest for more and better disciples as you empower us and strengthen us. And help us to know the joy one day in heaven of seeing people that you've actually used us. We didn't do it, but you actually used us to help them come to faith in Christ. That's our prayer. And we pray all of this in the incredible name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Amen.